Okay, what we are going to be doing in this seminar is we are going to be seeking uh, to learn who the Holy Spirit is, which I realize for most of us that may be like preaching to the choir, uh, and how he relates to us. Um, I was converted in 1968. I, I met the Lord in 1968. And at that time, I had no idea who the Holy Spirit really was. Uh, I was familiar with the Holy Spirit. I grew up in a Christian home uh, that, for the most part, during most of my growing up life, was a nominal Christian home. But my mother had been led to Christ about 10 years before I was, and bless her heart, she turned around and prayed the rest of us into the kingdom. And uh, she was in an active prayer group of women uh, at the time that I came to know Christ, and they routinely saw healings. And at the time that I uh, came to know the Lord, I did not realize uh, that there was a major controversy involving the Holy Spirit ongoing, and is still ongoing, because there are two different groups uh, of folks uh, two different sides, if you will. And I want you to understand when I use terms to describe these people, uh, and when I say these people, that includes us, that I'm just simply creating categories. I'm not trying to make a general statement that everybody in this group or that group is this way or that way. Uh, but the, Jesus said to the Pharisees <clears throat> in Matthew, 12, Mark 12, 24, Jesus told them, he said, uh, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures and you do not know the power of God. And the two groups really seem to be on the opposite ends of that. You have what's called the cessationist group and they believe that the uh, mir miraculous events and a number of the gifts of the Holy Spirit ceased with the death of the apostles. Uh, on the other extreme, you have what I would call the charismatic and Pentecostal. They are not necessarily synonymous people. And they actively practice and believe that the gifts of the Spirit are functional today and that, um, that the apostles did not die and everything dried up in that sense that signs and wonders are uh, active today, uh, that the gifts of the Spirit are functional today, and the two groups are at opposite extremes. Now, the charismatic group, can some of them can go to over the top. Uh, they can get too far out. But I want you to understand that um, there are many fine charismatic and Pentecostal teachers and preachers that I like listening to. And there are also many fine teachers and preachers on the cessationist side that I also enjoy listening to. Uh, the cessationists seem to be more grounded, if you will, in the scriptures. Uh, the charismatic groups seem to be more grounded in experience. That is not necessarily true across the board. Uh, there are plenty of folks who are charismatic or Pentecostal in their persuasion, and they're very well grounded in the scriptures. Uh, and they're very knowledgeable. So when I'm characterizing these two groups, I'm not trying uh, to paint a broad picture that covers everybody in these two groups. 
And I know that cessationism is gradually, some of it is gradually moving over to the center. What I tell folks is, in terms of myself is that I am not a cessationist. I am also not a charismatic. Now that should get me in trouble with both sides uh, at this point. Um, and I hope as we go along that I can give you some understanding about that. I've been involved in uh, working with pastors uh, and teachers for a good many decades. And in the practice of law, I have wound up defending some of them in court. Uh, and some of them, I have been amazed at how lacking in knowledge of the scriptures they are. They get themselves in trouble. Uh, and if they had followed the scriptures, they wouldn't be in the problems they were having. Uh, it is always critical to have a strong foundation in the scriptures uh, and to be well-versed in the fundamental doctrines of the faith. And the Holy Spirit expects that of us. Uh, and the danger is that if we are not well-grounded in the faith, then we can go off into different tangents without realizing that we're being misled. Now, let me just, uh, both sides at one time, I don't know if today they're a little more uh, uh, flexible with one another, but at one time both sides were extremely judgmental of the other side. Uh, the cessationist groups that I knew didn't feel like God would show up a Pentecostal meeting because their doctrines were not correct. Uh, and the Pentec uh, and God, if God waited until all of us had all of our doctrine down, he would never show up anywhere. The Pentecostal groups seemed to think because God showed up in their groups, which he did, that God approved their doctrine. I don't think that's valid either. Uh, we all are, none of us, 100% uh, solid on our doctrinal understandings. So in this area, we are really looking in a, in a sense at a doctrinal aspect of the Holy Spirit. We're going to start that way. And so what we want to do is we, this morning, we want to uh, look at three things. We want to look at the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. We want to look upon look at Jesus' dependence uh, on the Holy Spirit for the Father's glory because the Holy Spirit was actively involved uh, in Jesus' ministry. And third, we want to look at our dependence on the Holy Spirit in our lives uh, for God's glory. And so right off the bat, let's start with the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. First of all, uh, the Holy Spirit is a person. The Trinity uh, is God in three persons. Uh, the Holy Spirit is one of those three persons. And what we'll look at is the fact that the Holy Spirit is God. There is a lot of confusion, some of it seeping into the church. I think for the most part among the evangelical churches, this is not a problem. But there is this idea that the Holy Spirit is a force, uh, contrary to Star Wars. Uh, also, uh, the New Age movement will give you some uh, ideas that the Holy Spirit uh, is a force. Uh, he is also not a mist or a gas. Uh, he is an invisible person, but he is uh, unquestionably a person, and he is the third person uh, of the Trinity. His characteristics that we see throughout Scripture uh, will reflect 
that he is a person. For example, 1 Corinthians 2.11 says that he is intelligent. It says he searches the hearts, even the deep things of God, and knows the thoughts of God. Uh, He has feelings, Ephesians 4.30. It's possible uh, to quench the Holy Spirit and paragraph, I mean, uh, verse 31, following that statement, uh, gives you some understanding about how you can quench the Holy Spirit, uh, how you can grieve the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, verse four, Ephesians 4.30 says that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. And he can be grieved by us engaging in bitterness, um, anger, hatred, that sort of thing. Paul says, get rid of all of that. Uh, in Ephesians 4.31 because that is grievous uh, to the Holy Spirit. Uh, The Holy Spirit has a will and this is becoming in these last few years this is becoming a critical issue. 1 Corinthians uh, 12.11 says that the Holy Spirit has a will and it's referring in the context to his will it is referring to the spiritual gifts Uh, it says in verse 11 but one and the same spirit works all these things distributing to each one individually just as he wills and in the context of spiritual gifts you don't decide what gift you want he decides what gift you get and every one of you have at least one and you probably have more What we need to understand real quick, I don't want to get off on this tangent, but what we need to understand very quickly is the gifts listed in the scriptures in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, (coughs) excuse me, are not exclusive. They are samples. Uh, They're examples of gifts. There are numerous gifts that the Holy Spirit imparts Uh, that are not necessarily listed here. But we tend to think of those as the traditional gifts. And he distributes them as he chooses, as he wills. There are groups now coming together that if you want to be this gift, they'll teach you how to function in this gift. I disagree with that strongly. You You don't decide you're going to function in this gift. He decides uh, whether you do that or not. Um, He chooses to give gifts and ministries as he determines best. So in other words, when he gives gifts, he will also lead into ministries by which those gifts can effectively function. I'll give you an example. I do not have the gift of teaching. I have the gift of exhortation. But I exercise it in the ministry of teaching. Uh, I've learned what the gift of teaching is. I know I haven't got that. Uh, the, the teacher goes much more, much more deeply into the scriptures than I tend to do. Uh, but he will give gifts. He will uh, put you in ministry. And those gifts will function uh, in that ministry. Now, uh, secondly, his works that he does also proves that he is a person. He's not a concept uh, or an idea. He teaches. John 14, 26, Jesus speaking to the apostles said, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance the things that I have told you. 1 John 2, 27 says, You have no need for anyone to teach you because his spirit or anointing teaches you. 
Now that doesn't mean you shouldn't sit under the teaching of teachers. If it did, we wouldn't be here uh, right at this moment. But fundamentally, the ability to absorb and analyze and evaluate in the area of teaching comes from the Holy Spirit. Uh, because you have the Holy Spirit in you. And Gary is going to go into some detail uh, about that later. Also, um, you see examples of the Holy Spirit functioning in this way. If you turn back, and I'm not going to do it, but if you turn back to the second chapter of Acts, you will see Peter, as he gives his sermon at Pentecost, using Old Testament scripture uh, to explain the application of the tongues that these people heard and explaining uh, the resurrection as being prophesied by David in the Old Testament uh, as well as Christ's ascension. He is pulling out Old Testament scriptures uh, to be able to show that they apply uh, to Christ, to his resurrection, and to his ascension, ascension into heaven. And so the question you ask yourselves is, where did he get that? He was a fisherman. He was anything but a rabbi. And yet suddenly he had has the ability to do this. Uh, Luke 24, 45 says that when Jesus appeared in the upper room on Eastern Sunday night, one of the things that he does is he, it says that he opens their minds to understand the scriptures. <coughs> Excuse me. The same passage in John dealing with the Holy Spirit, I'm dealing with Jesus in the upper room on Easter Sunday night is uh, states the same thing, but I would suggest to you in a different way, and that's John 20, uh, 22. It says that Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And the word breathe there uh, in the Greek uh, refers to once for all. And I would suggest to you that when Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, that the process and effect of that was to open their minds to understand the scriptures. <clears throat> so you have the capability, because the Holy Spirit is in you, to grasp and understand the scriptures and to have your hearts and your minds enlightened by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Um, another thing that he does... Um, and also, let me say this, when you get to Acts 4, you will see that Peter is again standing in front of the Sanhedrin, making application to Old Testament uh, prophecy and applying it to the Sanhedrin. Uh, he talks about Jesus is the cornerstone whom the builders rejected. Well, what he does when he looks at him, when he says Jesus is the cornerstone whom you, the builders, rejected. Uh, and they are amazed at him and John because they recognize that these are unlearned men and yet they have the ability uh, to take Old Testament scripture and make application uh, to their contemporary circumstances. Romans 8.14, uh, Jesus, I mean the Holy Spirit guides us. Uh, Paul says those led by the Holy Spirit are the sons of God. Uh, Acts eight twenty, uh, Acts thirteen four, the Holy Spirit also commissions. In Acts thirteen, the very beginning of Acts thirteen, in Antioch, there are a number of prophets and teachers who are fasting and praying, and the Holy Spirit interrupts them and says, "Set apart from me 
Barnabas and Saul for the purpose that I have for them. <clears throat> in other words, the Holy Spirit commissions them uh, to go on what is known as Paul's first missionary journey. He commands people to do things. Uh, Acts 8.26 um, he commands Philip, who is right in the middle of a massive, successful evangelistic campaign in Samaria, he commands him to leave and go down by the Gaza Road all by himself. And to, what winds up happening is him speaking to a eunuch from Ethiopia who came by in a chariot. But he commanded Philip to do that. That wasn't Philip's idea. And Philip was quick to be obedient. The Holy Spirit, and this one is really critical to us, Romans 8.26 intercedes for us in our prayer. Romans 8.26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. And he, verse 27, who searches the hearts, of, uh, who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit uh, who intercedes for us uh, before God. Now, also, uh, he, uh, he speaks. Um, uh, Peter, uh, we'll look at this again, Second Peter 1, uh, 20. But know this, first of all, that the prophecy, that no prophecy of Scripture is, in a, matter of one, is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but when men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Uh, John 15:26 says that the Holy Spirit uh, will speak to you. Uh, he, in other words, what, what Jesus says in John 15:26 is the Holy Spirit will testify about me. Uh, his response, uh, the next thing, his response to people uh, proves that he's a person. What I said earlier in Ephesians 4:30, he can be grieved. And again, verse 31, uh, bitterness, anger, rage, brawling, slander, every form of malice will grieve the Holy Spirit. And what will happen is, when he is grieved, he will back off. And the problem and the danger that we fall into is when we're angry and resentful, we feel like we have a right to be angry and resentful. Anybody out there different than that? I mean... I mean, when I get angry, I feel like I have a right to be angry. I am one step ahead of you. I sue them. <laughs> but whether or not you think that you have a right to be angry, the Holy Spirit is still grieved. And the Holy Spirit will withdraw. And you, not in the sense of no longer dwelling in you, but in the sense of communion with him, will dry up. Because he will not function with that kind of attitude ongoing. That is contrary to who he is and to his personality. Um, Hebrews 10.29 says he can be insulted. Uh, and First Thessalonians 5.19 says, as opposed to grieved, he can be quenched as well. <clears throat> and Paul goes on to tell us that what quenches the Holy Spirit is despising prophecy or his word. Uh, with either contempt or unbelief. Uh, now, we in turn respond to him. And because we can respond to him, it's a, it's a two-way street. 
because we can respond to him, that's indicative that he is also a person. Uh, Again, we saw this in the case of Philip. He can be obeyed. In the case of Peter in Acts 10, uh, he was on his the rooftop. He went up to pray while they were fixing dinner. <coughs> Bless his heart, he fell asleep. He was good at that. Um, he has a vision of the Holy Spirit of unclean animals being let down in a sheep. And the Spirit says, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, not so, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And the Spirit says, do not declare unclean what I have declared clean. As soon as that vision is over, three men downstairs from knock on their door downstairs from Cornelius. And the Spirit says to them, don't be afraid, go with them. And so he is, in response to that, he obeys uh, and goes and ultimately winds up preaching to the first Gentiles in the household of Cornelius. He can be lied to by us. And that can be very dangerous. Acts 5.3, Ananias and Sapphira uh, paid for it with their lives. Both were told by Peter that he had lied to the Holy Spirit. He told Ananias, why has Satan put it in your heart uh, to lie to the Holy Spirit? I would suggest, folks, that shook the church up. That made a real impression on everybody, including Ananias and Sapphira. I would suggest to you that if the Holy Spirit moves into the churches today, and I'll bet everybody out here is praying for revival. If not, at least you know the necessity for it. Because revival is not coming in on Air Force One. And I'm not making a political statement at all. Revival is what this nation has to have. Revival of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit begins to purify us for that purpose to happen, we could see some more Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira examples. So we, we want to be very careful about how we respond to the Holy Spirit and what we do. Um, Acts 7.51, Holy Spirit can be resisted. Uh, again, that's dangerous. Stephen, in his speech, which was really an indictment against the Sanhedrin, uh, told them that they were always stiff-necked, resisting the Holy Spirit. Uh, and also, and we'll look at this in a little more detail, Matthew twelve thirty-one, he can be blasphemed. <clears throat> and a lot of people will come to me um, and say to me, Kali, um, I'm, I'm concerned that at some point I blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Um, what is the um, what is the criteria here? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I would suggest to you that if you're here, you have not blasphemed the Holy Spirit. But what is the context in which it has happened? <coughs> it begins in Matthew 12:22. They bring a man who has a demonic um, spirit, and he is deaf and he is dumb. They bring him to Jesus. And the Jews had a, a complex method for casting out demons. And it involved requiring the demon to name himself. However, they couldn't cast out the demon of muteness because the man couldn't talk. And therefore, they couldn't make the demon name himself through the man. <coughs> the rabbis taught that 
with regard to the demon of muteness that the Messiah would be able to cast out the demon of muteness. So when they bring this deaf and dumb, and he's deaf and dumb because of the demon. You can be deaf and dumb and demons have nothing to do with it. But this man is deaf and dumb because of a demon. Jesus cast him out. The crowd's immediate response was, Oh, can this be the son of David? Which is a messianic title. Why would they say that? Because their own rabbis had taught them that the Messiah would be able to cast that type of demon out. How do the Pharisees and the Sadducees respond? Cast them out by Beelzebub. Jesus says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, who do your sons cast them out by? They will therefore be your accusers. Jesus says, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. For that, there is no forgiveness. What does he mean by that? I've had people come to me who (coughs) at one time had gone from the cessationist side of the aisle to the charismatic side. And when they were cessationists, declared that speaking in tongues was demonically inspired. And so now they're very worried that they blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Well, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, folks, occurs when you know you are seeing the work of the Holy Spirit and knowing that it's the Holy Spirit, you declare it is of the devil. That's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I'll be willing to bet nobody in this room has done that. Um, And so if you are, and I have people who really are sweating that and have bothered them for years uh, because at a time when they didn't understand the powers of the Holy Spirit, they had attributed some of those powers uh, to Satan. And of course Satan can duplicate a lot of the gifts of the Spirit. They might have even been right. But they are very concerned. You don't need to be concerned unless at the time you knew it was the Holy Spirit and you said that's the devil. And, I, and I've not known anybody that ever did that except the Pharisees. Okay. Um, also, um, uh, the oh, let me, let me mention one other thing. Just, just as a, a tidbit, I guess, as an aside, I, Dr. Um, Paul Meyer in, not the guy here in Dallas area, but a archaeologist and, and Roman historian at the Lutheran University, Lutheran University in Wisconsin, I believe is where he is, says that about 20 years ago they found the arrest warrant for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, when they were uh, binding him uh, in the garden, binding his hands behind him, there would have been the chief official would have had a little scroll reading to him the charges. He was apparently, according to this, now I've not seen this arrest warrant. This is what I heard him say in an interview one time. Jesus was charged with two counts. One was sorcery. The other was blasphemy. They tried to prove the sorcery charge by having witnesses come in and testify that he said he could destroy the temple and raise it back up in three days. They couldn't get witnesses to agree substantially on the facts of that. In order to convict under Jewish law, you had to have two witnesses at least 
who substantially agreed. The sorcery charge failed. The only thing left was blasphemy. The high priest came down off the dais, which totally violated Jewish procedural law, and confronted Jesus and said, I adjure you by the living God, are you the Son of God? Are you the Christ, the Son of God? Jesus, on trial for his life, under Jewish law, had the right to remain silent, and they could not ascribe guilt to his silence. And Jesus knew that. And Jesus said, I am. Why? Because he was there to die. He was not there to get out of it. They failed on the sorcery. What did they convict him on? Blasphemy. Um, he could have said nothing, and I think their case would have been flushed right there. But he was not there to get out of it. He was there because of us. Uh, and he was there uh, to, to die for us. Okay. Now also clearly uh, the use of personal pronouns <coughs> reflect that the Holy Spirit is a person. <coughs> He's referred to in, in terms of he, him, uh, John 16, 13, 14, John 15, 26. Uh, He's not referred to as an it. He is always referred to uh, as a person in terms of personal pronouns. So very clearly, folks, the Holy Spirit uh, is a person. uh, And this particular person, as we started out at the beginning, is God. And so uh, what we want to look at is his deity because we see his characteristics also prove that he is God. We know from 1 Corinthians uh, 2, 10 through 11, that he's omniscient. Uh, he has all knowledge. Uh, Psalm 139 through 7 says he's omnipresent. Uh, 139, 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Uh, Jeremiah 23, 23 and through 24. You cannot hide from my spirit even in the lowest parts of hell. Uh, so we know that he is also omnipresent. He is the truth, according to 1 John Five seven. Jesus also said, I am the way, the truth, uh, and the life. We know from Luke 11.13 uh, that he is holy. And Romans 8.2 says he gives life. Through Jesus Christ, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. <clears throat> His works also prove that he's God. Uh, he is involved in creation. Genesis 1-2, uh, where it says, And the, the, the earth was void and without form, and the Spirit of God was hovering above the waters. Incidentally, the Hebrew word for hover uh, also refers to a dove. Hmm. Now, where, where did we see the, the dove? The, Luke 3. Uh, John said that he saw the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. Now notice he said like a dove. He didn't say he was a dove. But he said he descended on him uh, like a dove. We don't know exactly what John saw uh, to make that statement. But it is interesting to me that all the way back to Genesis 1, they use a phrase in the Hebrew that would mean hover uh, as a dove. Uh, he is also the author of inspiration. I'm not going to read Second Peter 1.21 again. 
we know from Luke 1.35 that he was involved in the conception of Christ. Mary asked Gabriel, how can this be? How can I be pregnant? I've never known a man. Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will come uh, upon you. Uh, he also regenerates and saves people. Uh, John uh, 3. Let's get John 3 real quick. John 3, verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, uh, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless the Spirit is indwelling you, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And there's only one way that can happen, and that's availing yourself of the fact that Jesus died for you, bore your sin, and absorbed your judgment. Now, I mentioned earlier that he intercedes for us. Um, and uh, let's look at Romans 8.26 real quick. I hope you brought your Bibles. Because for us, folks, this is particularly significant. Um, and our interaction with the Holy Spirit comes into play most often, I think, in just from day-to-day life uh, in this situation. Romans 8.26 uh, In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he who intercedes for the saints, because he intercedes for the saints, according to the will of God. Now, what Paul is going to do in verse 27 is expand on that statement according to the word of God and show us what the implication of that is. Verse 27, And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And then it says, verse 28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. I would suggest to you that those four verses work together. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, he starts looking at what's in the household, uh, in other words, you, and he starts making a list. Now, this is my theory. And he says, uh uh-huh, seen that before. Okay, can handle that. Uh Uh-huh, we can deal with that. Yep, nothing here I haven't seen before. And then he starts interceding for you. And the Father begins to arrange your circumstances to deal with what the Holy Spirit knows needs to be gotten out of your life. That's why we know that in all things he works together for good. In order for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Why? 
that we might be conformed to the image of his son. Now, in having given that example, and I think it is a valid example, I think the Holy Spirit does intercede for us in that way. <clears throat> but I don't want to limit that verse to that uh, because I think the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in numerous ways, particularly events and things that come into our lives, maybe at the arrangement of the Father, the Holy Spirit will intercede for us in those particular circumstances very often. Well, not often. I think he will all the time. Uh, we understand our weaknesses. Problems and difficulties drive us to our knees. If you're in Christ, you know you're utterly dependent on him. I drive to work every day saying, Lord, I'm dependent on you. Show me your loving kindness this morning so that tonight I might declare your faithfulness. I mean, I, I understand uh, that I'm utterly dependent on him. I'll give you an example, a couple of examples of intercession in the power of the Holy Spirit where it can be actually direct. Uh, back, oh gosh, 40 years ago, the uh, Civil War had just ended. And I, <laughs> I was teaching a class of uh, young families. And a good friend of mine, we had, was, and his wife were in the class, she became pregnant with their first child. Um, one day near the, uh, getting very close to the birth, you know, almost nine months, he gets home and she is extremely ill. He rushes her to Arlington Memorial Hospital and they do an instant C-section delivering the baby. The doctor told him, if you had gotten her here one hour later, both she and the baby would have been lost. The baby was fine, but she had toxemia and they hadn't picked up on it. <clears throat> and um, she was not fine. And she got worse. Uh, and the toxemia went to eclampsia. When a woman has eclampsia, that's when a woman most often will die in childbirth, even today. And so they rushed her over to Baylor Hospital in Dallas because Arlington Memorial did not have the uh, ability to take care of her. And she was in ICU, swollen beyond recognition. And uh, other couple that was in her class had gone over there. It was a Friday night. And they'd gone over there to uh, see them. And her husband was there. 24 hours constantly there <clears throat> and they the other couple called us about 10 o'clock and said well we were over there and they don't expect her to survive the night well the next morning she was fine and coming out of it and it was only about two weeks later at lunch with her husband that I found out what happened I said what happened I thought your wife was going to die he said, I did too. I was out in the waiting room. And I thanked God for the five years of marriage that we had. And I committed her into his hands. And then the Spirit spoke to me and said, she needs intercessory prayer. And he said, but the elders are back in Arlington. We don't have time. And the Lord said, we don't need the elders. You'll do. And he said, but 
I'm such a sinner. And he said instantly he had a picture of a white robe dipped in blood. And the Spirit said, put that on and don't let me hear any more talk about sin. And so then he said, now what do I do? He said, go into ICU. He said, I can't go into ICU. They won't let me in there. The Lord said, when I let you in there, they will. So he goes into ICU. This is about probably 1130 or midnight. Nobody's in there but his wife. And he lays his hand on her head. He said, she was totally unrecognizable. And I said, well, then what happened? He said, I interceded. And I said, and how did you do that? He said, I don't know. I didn't understand the language. And it would go for an hour. And then it would start to wane. And the language would start to, to come to an end. And I would say, Lord, what, what's, what's happening? And the Lord would say, you're doubting. We need to deal with your doubts. And he said, well, what do I do? He said, confess your doubting. He said, you mean confess? I doubt. He said, that's what I mean. And it would pick up again. And then it would wane after a while. And he would say, I'm doubting. And it would pick up again. You remember the guy that brought his son to Jesus? Mm -hmm. And Jesus said, if you believe. Mm -hmm. And the guy said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Mm -hmm. What happened? Jesus didn't say, go home and get more faith. Bang, he healed yeah. uh, So this went from about, if I'm remembering. Remember, I'm talking to you from 40 years ago. This went on from about midnight until 5.30 in the morning. Solid. Never knew what he said. Was empowered with the ability to stand there for five and a half hours. Amen. Praying for him. That is a beautiful example of the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. Amen. Yeah. When the doctors came in, they immediately noticed the change. The swelling had already started to go down. They're a husband and wife today, and they had two kids. And I think one's a surgeon. Amen. Uh, so that's, that's what God will do. Now, one, something I've discovered recently, um, and that is in verse 27, uh, and I shared this with the Sunday school class last Sunday, I think, where we were about to go to trial. I was totally ready to go to trial. And uh, the other side had talked about settling, but would never sit down and, and go to mediation, never do anything. There were two defendants, and one defendant desperately wanted to go to mediation. The other one kept saying, yeah, we'll go, we'll go, and then they never would do anything. Well, we got the pretrial hearing, but what happened before the pretrial hearing is I'm praying. Now, I don't mind going to trial. I usually don't like it, but that's my job description. Uh, but I asked the Holy Spirit, and I'm looking at verse 27. I said, I don't know what's right here. I don't know if it should settle or it should go to trial. I have no idea what your will is. So based on verse 27, Holy Spirit, would you intercede based on because you know what the will of the Father is? Would you just go ahead and intercede? I don't know what to say. I don't know what to pray. Would you intercede? Next day we have pre-trial hearing. The other side, one of the defendants said, why haven't we settled right in front of the arbitrator? <laughs> why haven't we settled? This guy that had been delaying, 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 suddenly they popped up and said, okay, we want to settle. We're going to trial in two days. Well, we want to mediate. Well, you don't get a mediator like that the last minute. So I called a mediator I use, and I said, I know this is not likely, but is he available for tomorrow afternoon? Yes, he is. He just had a cancellation. 
Wow. Went to mediation, didn't go to trial. So the Holy Spirit was interceding with the Father according to the will of the Father. And it was so uh, obvious that it was the Lord's desire to go ahead and so. And so I don't know if I can teach that as a doctrine, but I know that it works. <laughs> Uh, there are many times when you'll know what you're praying about and you'll be asking the Holy Spirit a lot of times to show you uh, what is your will now many of you have heard the story that I tell of my middle daughter who was born six weeks prematurely and uh, within two days they had her in NICU her lungs were not developed and so she had to get better or she wouldn't we wouldn't have a real problem and so day after day after day, no change, no change, no change. She's not getting better. So I got down on my knees one night and I said, Lord, how do you want me to pray for Emily? And the Spirit responded and said, pray that you'll be much improved in the morning. Wow. So that's all I did. I didn't pray if it be thy will. Heal Emily, do this, that, and the other. If it be thy will, I simply prayed. And understand, folks, I'm making myself sound terribly spiritual here. <clears throat> I'm not. I simply pray, Lord, I'm praying to receive what I understand you said, that she'd be much improved in the morning. My father called in the NICU at midnight. Grandparents could call in. Nurse said, no change. My wife called in at 5.30 in the morning. Uh, the nurse answered, said, no change. I called at 7 and I got the doctor making rounds. I said, how's Emily? The doctor says she's much improved this morning. <laughs> of course, Emily today has two kids. <laughs> so she's doing fine. But this is a powerful verse we need to understand as we have interaction with the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. I don't want to teach anything that limits the application of this passage. Because this passage is a very flexible passage. It's the Holy Spirit who intercedes. We don't decide to tell him how to do it. But it is extremely important to understand that. Okay, uh, I'm going to move on and then we'll take a break. Um, his names also reflect that he is God. 1 Corinthians 6.11 calls him the Spirit of God. Uh, and in Matthew 28... Uh, 19, Jesus tells us to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which makes the three of them together co-equal. So that means the Holy Spirit is also God. And the Holy Spirit is Almighty God, folks, and He needs to be reverenced as Almighty God. And it is dangerous to speak of Him in an unworthy manner. And it is also dangerous to get cutesy with him. The Holy Spirit is extremely sensitive. I don't mean overly sensitive, but I mean he is sensitive. And I've heard people get real cutesy about or with the Holy Spirit. And I don't think that is a wise thing uh, to do. <clears throat> we get in line with him and his agenda. He doesn't get in line with us in our agenda. And there's a lot of silly thinking about that right now uh, in some teaching that I've heard. It doesn't work that way. We're his servant. He is not our servant. When we are praying, we're wanting to pray according to his will 
And sometimes the Holy Spirit will tell you if you ask what his will is. Not always do we know, but if you pursue it, you may find that he will be willing to tell you. Sometimes we have to press in and really persevere in order to hear him. And what's interesting is sometimes the process of doing it is as important as the answer you get. Uh, because the process can be very significant. It grows us spiritually. It makes us more mature uh, spiritually. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Have no anxiety about everything, but in with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, uh, and the peace of God uh, will that passes all understanding. You'll be filled with the peace of God that passes all understanding. Uh, and Romans 12, 2 says that don't be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your spirit so that you may prove that his will is good, perfect, and acceptable. When you pray in the spirit, uh, one of the ways to deal with anxiety, and this is one that is particularly difficult for me because I'm an anxious person by nature. I'm what you call a melancholy. And I don't know what to do if there's not something to worry about. Uh, Of course, it's an indication of lack of faith on my part. But when you commit things into his hand, you want the peace of God that passes all understanding. Then in committing into his hand, whatever that will is, whether you know it or not, understand that it will be good, perfect, and acceptable. In that basis, you can give thanksgiving. And you commit it to him and the peace of God that passes all understanding. Okay, let's take about a five-minute break. um, And we'll pick up with the third aspect of it, second aspect of it.